Hey everybody, Jen here, and welcome back to A Call to Lead. Well, today we're wrapping up season one with a special final episode of special highlights where we're sharing some of our favorite stories, lessons, and insights from the 26 episodes we've recorded over the past six months. I told you when I started this that hosting a podcast was definitely something I never thought I'd do, but I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this first season and how much I've learned since recording that very first episode with Ariana Huffington. And since then, We've recorded episodes on four continents in front of thousands of live audience listeners, and we've heard from some of the world's best and brightest leaders across business, athletics, academia, entertainment, and politics. We've talked to these leaders about the things that matter, the stories and the moments that have shaped their careers and lives, the lessons they've learned and shared, and maybe most importantly, the mistakes and failures that have shaped and guided their path to leadership. It's clear to me more than ever that leadership requires wisdom, And wisdom is simply a combination of time and experience. You can't speed up time and you can't manufacture experiences, but you can definitely share those experiences. And I hope you've taken away as much as I have from the experiences that these leaders have shared with us in a very authentic way. So enjoy today's episode. And as always, leave your feedback and a rating. Thank you so much for listening and for coming on this journey with us. Stay tuned for season two. I hope you have a great summer and I'll talk to you soon. You're listening to A Call to Lead, a different kind of leadership podcast brought to you by SAP, the world's largest provider of enterprise application software. SAP engineers solutions to help companies become best-run businesses by transforming industries, growing economies, lifting up societies, and sustaining our environment because it's the best-run businesses that make the world run better. And now your host, Jennifer Morgan. One of the problems at Uber was what's happening with many companies, especially in Silicon Valley, around worshipping top performers. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a top performer, yes. that you're delivering results, a lot is forgiven you. Yes. And that yes. creates a very toxic culture. Yes. And so I also said in that first all hands that no brilliant jerks will be I allowed. I love that. I lo- I love the term brilliant jerk because everybody knows exactly what it means, <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> right? And we've all had some around <laughs> us. And I know I had a brilliant jerk at the Huffington Post. <laughs> and I remember it took me much longer than it should have taken me to fire him because yeah. he was so good right. at his job. Right. The fact that he was destroying the culture right. became secondary until I woke up. Yes. So. Um, I think I spent also a lot of time listening. Mm -hmm. I literally, right after that, all hands and for weeks after, um, I would book office hours Mm -hmm. and talk to people Mm -hmm. um, privately. Yes. And then when the investigation with Eric Calder was launched in the presence of a of a lawyer, it was it was an incredible teachable moment Mm -hmm. for the culture. Yes. I learned an enormous amount. And then, of course, chairing the selection committee mm-hmm. that brought us Dara was also fascinating, you know, to bring yes. a leader, um, as he has proven to be, yes. um, who would uh, not just continue building the business, which is a hugely successful hyper-growth business, but would also create a thriving culture. Okay, so you surround yourself, you're a big believer in surrounding yourself with positivity and being around that and just cutting the negative stuff out. I do, out. I believe So that. who do you surround yourself with? Who are the people 
Tell us about who you choose to surround yourself with and why. It's a very small circle. Like I have very few friends. I spend an outrageous amount of amount of time with my mom and my wife. Positive people. Brandon, my best friend, who still runs the wine business, outrageously positive. Um, I have a team that works for me. It's impossible to be on that team for any more than a minute if you're not a positive person. So, you know, whether it's an admin or a chief of staff or the people that help me build out my content, all the leaders that my direct reports, the C-suite, you know. I definitely don't hold them to the same level of positivity because they're after reverse engineer certain things and have some empathy to what their day to day is. I, I really, really, really think that positivity is a strategy. And I think a lot of people think positivity is delusion. Mm. I think people think keeping it real is like important. And I every time I hear that, I'm like keeping it real cynical and negative. You know, I think that, I think, I'm the least delusional person of all time because I've had to run a business every day of my life. I've never raised capital and I've made payroll every week in, per, in my entire 22 years. So I've run actual businesses. All my startup friends who lose $2 million a month and think they're running a business, I laugh until the economy collapses and then you're out of business, right? So I keep it outrageously. How many people here are immigrants or children of immigrants? We keep it practical. So I'm very practical, but I think you're able to look at a situation and decide if you're gonna fold like a cheap chair or start working on a solution. I keep things positive. Like my vision, my cause, um, my just cause is I wanna help build a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe at work, and return home fulfilled at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And so all of the metrics the, the, you know, the success of my business gives me the resources to pour into that cause. If I go to business, then there's no cause. Yes. You know? So will and resources both matter. Not will or resources, will and resources. The mm -hmm. will of the people devoted to the cause and the resources to provide the fuel to advance the cause. Mm -hmm. um, I want to innovate. I want to keep writing. I want to keep talking. Why? Because i got to advance this cause. And absolutely I count the metrics because for me they're indicators of the advancing of the cause. Mm -hmm. But it's not the metrics. Mm -hmm. Those aren't the end-all be-all. Right. They're indicators of speed and distance. Yes. And so if they go down, I have to say, okay, we've slowed down or we've traveled less distance. Is there a reason that I need to be concerned? Is the machine broken? Or is it just ex uh, external factors and it's okay, mm -hmm. we'll just keep going? Mm -hmm. You know? But yeah. it helps me completely change my mindset yes. because I have this sense of purpose and cause. And it's the responsibility of businesses, quite frankly, to provide their people and their customers and their vendors a sense of purpose and cause that we yes. are all advancing something bigger than ourselves and that's why all of this blood, sweat and tears is worth it. That's why the stress and the late nights and yes. the phone calls and the business trips and being away from our kids, though I don't like it, it's worth it. Francis, can you be a leader without being an innovator? Can you be an innovator and not be a leader? Talk to me a little bit. Yeah, everybody who's a leader or a technology officer or information officer or an innovator, innovation pusher at a company, has to figure out what's my skill set. And I can talk personally. I mean, I tended to push innovation a lot when I was at various places. Uh, I tended to try hard on the vision. I was not a great manager. I mean, you know, people would come to me with all sorts of management issues and I'd like stay up all night and worry about them and stuff. And so I put together a team. And I think what you need to do 
is say, I'm really good at the vision, or I'm really good as an executive, or I can do these things. Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs was a great innovator uh, in his early days at Apple. Mm -hmm. He figured out the Macintosh, mm -hmm. something you could just pull out of a box, and it was a thing of beauty. He was not a great leader, mm -hmm. to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. He gets fired. When he comes back, he says, okay, I'm still Steve Jobs, and I'm gonna mm -hmm. think of the iPod, the iPhone, everything else, but I'm gonna put together a team. I'm gonna put Tim Cook. I'm gonna get Johnny Ive. I'm gonna put it together. So when he was dying, I said to him, what's the greatest product you ever made? What's your greatest innovation? And he said, making a great product or innovation is hard, but what's really hard and important is making the right team who can continue to do innovation. So I knew my weaknesses, and I put the team together around me. Leonardo did that. I think of Leonardo as just off on a garret. When he does Vitruvian Man, he's doing it with four friends. They're trying to redesign the, the cathedral at Pavia near Milan. They're looking at Vitruvius's work on architecture, an ancient work. And then they all sit around, and they all do different versions of a man and the proportions of a man fitting into a church. So Leonardo knew that creativity was a team sport. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I think some of the best leaders that I've worked with and that I've just covered, I see that evolution. I yes. see them showing, listen, I've, you know, I've, got warts and, and scars and I've got my weaknesses, but I'm still showing up to work every day yes. and my door is open whenever possible yes. for you to come in and talk to me about yes. whatever issue you have. Well, and you can, you can draw a parallel to what, what you explained with your dad, right? Yeah. Really understanding what matters to people mm -hmm. and, and listening. Yeah. And I think that, that that gets so much respect and followership when somebody feels that somebody's truly in touch with what's happening. Well, you, I heard you speaking a couple of years ago about how you just set the, the, the bar down saying, listen, I've got to leave at 3.30 every day or whatever it was to pick mm -hmm. up your kids. Yep. And I think when you see a leader yes. set that example, it makes it okay. It, 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 it just changes everything in the workforce. Yes. People want to contribute even more and they want to work harder while they're at work because they appreciate that you're human yes. and that you appreciate and value their time too. Yes. Um, and, and I think that there are so many instances where people say, oh, the boss is still here, so I have to stay here too, exactly. and I have to miss whatever it is that this milestone that my, my child has tonight. I'm probably not going to be contributing as much it, as I could be at yes. work because I'm focused on exactly. that. But you know, so it's sort of a superficial reason for, quote, unquote, working longer and harder. I just think that kind of leadership example is, is you know, a game changer. Yeah. You're one of those people who seem to be so aware and connected to the people around you, and, and you use those connections in a very natural, authentic way. But there's also no excuse from just doing it. Yes. Stop thinking about it. Stop planning for it. Stop writing it down. Just do it. Just do it. And if you can't afford it, figure out a way you can. Put it in a Ziploc bag if you can't afford a jar. There's ways around things. Just do it and don't stop. One of the things I, I believe I gain through that variety of experiences um, and I look for in others that I hire is a principle I call operating range, which is 
the ability to go high, the ability to think about something at 30,000 feet, the ability to think about something at 300 feet, the ability to think of, to roll your sleeves up and be at 30 feet if that's what it takes to get the job done. And even at Google, I saw that, that, you know, the great leaders weren't leaders who just always wanted to stay high or always wanted to stay low and could never extract themselves from the weeds. They were the people who could know how to move seamlessly low to high and when the job required different things from them to be successful. You know, people also need to be really good listeners. I mean, if you're running a company or if you're running a department, uh, you don't, you, you know what you think. You don't need to hear your own voice speaking. Um, and you've got to encourage people to come forward with ideas. You've got to be a good listener. Um, and there's no point if somebody comes up with an idea, a good idea, just nodding and saying, yes, we'll follow up on that. If you don't write it down, you're going to forget about it. So, you know, write it down. Go, go you know, thank the person. Go and... Um, you know, give them credit for the idea and, and, um, and they will stay with your company. They'll be very loyal. Um, I mean, I find, you know, from, from talking to people, the, the reason that people leave companies is because, not because of the money, um, often, but just because they're not listened to. Right. And, and um, they just get frustrated and they think, you know, I'll go to a company that does listen to me. I had a long conversation with these people at a law firm in Cincinnati called Frost Brown, um, which has taken a lot of these ideas to heart. And they sat down and they said, "Who? what are the leaders of our law firm like? So they're, first of all, they're, they asked the question specific to their own organization. They didn't ask, what are the leaders in the legal profession like? They said, what is Frost Brown about? What is our culture? And who's, who thrives here? And who are the people who we trust? And, and they said a very specific kind of person thrives here. A person who is um, highly collegial. So we are a law firm that where everything is done in teams and the teams change, they're fluid. You are on one team for one project, another team another. So you must be able to move across disciplines. And the second thing is we are a highly entrepreneurial firm. We are flat if you are waiting to get orders from your boss, you're not going anywhere in this firm. So when they go out and they look for people who they hope will populate their, be their future leaders, that's what they look for. And what they, the first thing they found was that once they had clarified what their culture was and what their leaders looked like, they started looking in very different places for it, when it came to hiring and hiring very different kinds of people. And they also discovered that even though they had known that's who they were, they had not been hiring that kind of person in the past. There had been this big disconnect between. So that, to me, is really interesting. And it's not that the, the two part, two interesting parts of that are, one, the, the idea that a definition of a leader changes from, organ, from culture to culture, mm -hmm. that there are probably 100 different kinds of leaders, and we need to define carefully what we mean in terms of our own institution. And the second thing is, you may know what you, what, you, what, what you want in your, but unless you, in a very systematic, focused way, make a connection between what you want and what you actually go out and find, you won't, you won't do it. You won't do it, you won't do a good job. You'll fall back on old habits and just hire. Their whole point was, you know, as an elite law firm, the habit we fell back on was hiring the kid with a high GPA from, you know, Stanford Law School. And we discovered, 
lots of those people are not what we want. They're not, they can be brilliant, but they'll hand in their brilliantly written brief and they'll go back and sit by themselves in their office and work here, right? Do you believe um, the best leaders have to also continue to be lifelong learners, the best students? Oh, of course. I mean, um, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I love most about teachers, other teachers, is that of all the people who I've met, um, groups of people, I think teachers are really the best example of lifelong learners because they're constantly in their fields learning new things, researching, listening to other people, um, going to workshops. You know, I don't know what it's like in the corporate environment because I, I haven't worked there. But uh, that's my, been my experience that teachers are constantly open to, to new ideas and ways of learning and um, learning new ideas. It's essential. I think um, from the beginning, one of the things that's made um, us successful at OA is uh, the relationship between me and my co-founder. So um, we, we worked together at Warby Parker. We started this company together. We were friendly, but not so friendly that we were afraid to give each other real feedback. And I think mm -hmm. it's been a hallmark of our culture and all of our leadership team and, and of everyone at OA. It's like the communication and the transparency has been something that, and the context is something that is so important throughout the organization, something we really value and mm -hmm. something that we won't sacrifice. Mm -hmm. But then beyond that, I think, you know, we've spent a lot of time thinking, we spent a lot of time thinking about culture and core values. We actually, um, uh, you know, we've always worked at companies with core values, but when it came time to write ours down, we were like, this feels a little inauthentic for two people with no employees to sit in a room and, and write down a bunch of words and say, oh, these are going to be OA's core values for the rest of time. So we actually waited till we had maybe 30 or 40 employees. Mm -hmm. We were on a fun team trip um, in Nicaragua, and we actually split up into groups and asked people to describe what they thought our core values were and mm -hmm. to actually describe our culture. And it was actually like a group activity mm -hmm. for for the first few dozen people at away, and that kind of set the stage for, okay, here are our core values, and they include being thoughtful, being iterative, being customer-obsessed, being empowered, um, being accessible in terms of having all the context that you need, mm -hmm. all the things we talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and we often, you know, now that we're nearing 300 people, we, we constantly check in, and I don't think it's like, I feel like core values are very precious, and you should for sure... Um, like know what they are, they should guide what you do. But I think it's also really important to take a step back and say, hey, the company's growing really quickly. Do these still ring true? If they don't, what are the things we can be doing to make it feel true? And if there's nothing, if we don't really want to do any of those things, does this, should this still exist as one of our values? Somebody goes, ooh, can I really be the boss? I'm not ready, da da da. Or, you know, as we've seen, particularly in this midterm election, you know, could I run for Congress? Yeah. <laughs> can I represent the people? I am the people. Yes, I can. It's we. We are here for us as our own representatives. And we see all these amazing and particularly many extraordinary women who come from, in their mind, a workplace environment that didn't prepare them for what they decided Congress should look like. Yeah. 
and yet they're doing extraordinary things. So I think it's time for all of us to say, I'm ready to be in the position of power, power meaning willingness, as you said, to be vulnerable, willingness to lead with the strength of an interest in collaboration and an insight into doing it differently than it's ever been. Yes, and to learn along, learn while you lead. Yeah. That was very eye-opening to me. So you talk about feedback, and, and one of the podcasts you've done is how to love criticism. And I, lo- I love that concept because I think if you really embrace feedback, you just learn so much about yourself. But that's hard for people to not only accept it, but actually seek it out. Yeah. What do you, like, when you look at maybe newer leaders versus people who have a little bit more experience, do you see a difference in the ability or the willingness to, to solicit that? Yeah, what I've, I've actually seen, I, don't, I would love to see some data for this, but anecdotally, what I've noticed is when leaders are new, they seek a ton of feedback because they're just orienting themselves to the role. They want to figure out whether they're meeting people's expectations. And then as they get comfortable, feedback seeking starts to wane. And that's, to me, when they start needing it the most. Because the less they ask for it, the fewer signals they're sending out to people around them that they're open to it, right? And then at some point, they start to gain more power and status and people become more and more fearful of of speaking truth to power. And so one of the things that I've seen experienced leaders do really effectively to overcome this is they just criticize themselves out loud. And you probably have, I'm sure you've done this, you probably work with people who have done this. Um, but it's amazing to watch a leader say, you know, I'm, um, I'm really bad at, uh, at creative thinking. Or, you know, one of the things I know I need to work on is I need to be more patient in listening to ideas before judging them. And when you see a leader do that, Melinda Gates is brilliant at this. Uh, she'll talk about how, I've, I've watched her talk about how she feels a tremendous amount of pressure to um, be polished and professional. And sometimes that means she doesn't share enough uh, personally. Or another thing that she talks a lot about is um, she feels one of her strengths is listening. And that means she doesn't assert her own opinion enough. And when you hear her talk about this stuff, you say, okay, the next time I see you fall into that trap, I'm not afraid of telling you because you already know that's an area for improvement. And also, if I recognize something else you could get better at that I haven't heard you talk about, I think, huh, maybe that's a blind spot and it's an opportunity for me then to give some more valuable feedback. And so I think it's just um, it's something I guess leaders who are very self-aware do to try to give their, their teams guardrails around, look, here are the things I already know that you can help me get better at. And that also kind of gives you a clue about what I don't know. So I want to talk about some of the stuff that, that you've got going on. You, you, you talked about Code with Classy. Yeah. What got you interested in STEM, in helping women kind of uh, build the pipeline for STEM careers for women? Tell me about what started that. The, the, the short of it is just that I really wanted to understand what all of these tech entrepreneurs, primarily men, uh, knew that I didn't know and that none of my friends knew, didn't have a class at school growing up, learning how to code and that was what that was this kind of mysterious hidden secret language that the people who knew it were able to build ideas into billion dollar enterprises and you know and and I and I felt like I was just seeing the world be transformed by technology and by these technologies built by a small handful of people and I was really inspired but also confused about why why I why that wasn't a path that I knew of and why there weren't more girls being encouraged to to see opportunities in that direction and 
and the industry as a whole, I, it just kind of was this, um, I realized there's just a lack of representation uh, of women, of diversity in technology. And and this all happened because I, I, I took a coding class and I even just high level started to understand how things are built. And I found so much confidence in that, in that skill set. And I was really inspired by the idea of being able to problem solve whether it's in a for-profit or non-profit way, but being able to use coding to build solutions to problems and to be able to help other young girls realize that they could learn that, even if, you know, you're not a guy in a hoodie. And, um, <laughs> and so, you know, I think that was, that was for me the catalyst for wanting to start Code with Classy. So is it hard, you know, when you have the title that you have, um, is it harder as leaders become more senior to, to surround themselves with people who are willing to challenge the status quo or push back on you? Because I can imagine that's important for you as you're making decisions to be able to do that versus having somebody say, that sounds good. Yeah, I think it's important to have people who challenge you, important to have people who bring you new ideas. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was saying it a moment or two ago, but I think this, this is true in politics and true in any walk of life. The hardest thing about leadership, just as a, as a purely organizational matter, the hardest thing is making change. Yes. Because what I've found about change is that everyone loves it in general, they just hate it in particular. <laughs> you know, so, and, and what I learned about making change is that when you first propose it, people tell you it's a bad idea. When you're doing it, it's hell. And when you've done it, you wish you'd done more of it. And I think, you know, that is a very, that's a lesson that you learn over time. And so if you are having to make changes, important also you have people around you who are good, obviously, and capable, but who are, and are prepared to challenge you, but are also prepared to make you think innovatively. Because yes. keeping that spark of creativity around whatever you do is incredibly important. And it's so easy to get into your comfort zone and yes. stay there. What words of wisdom or encouragement um, would you give to a Girl Scout who aspires to be president of the United States one day? The first sale you have to make is to yourself. If you believe it, you can do it. I love it. Fearlessness. Fearlessness. Great leaders have typically managed through tough times or through a crisis. Has that ever happened to you? You know, I've, I've, been, I've been at this job uh, as CEO for four years and been a professional for 26. So I've had a few crises along the way. And I will tell you that, you know, I always think about this very important piece of advice I got early on when I was, you know, a young partner. And uh, this person said, leaders are not there to put more stress into the system. Leaders are not there to put more stress into the system. And it's really a message about, as a leader in a time of crisis, this is not the time when you're you know, yelling at people, where you're you know, saying, oh my God, and you know, causing lots of turmoil. It's the time to be calm, to be objective, right? And to recognize that everyone is taking their cue from you. And no matter how bad the crisis is, it's never better 
if people feel some sense of, you know, freneticism or, you know, out being out of control. And so as a leader, the most important thing you can do is to put calm into the system and to have people believe that you believe we can work through it. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the season one highlights episode. Send me an email with feedback at jennifer.morgan at sap.com. And we'll see you in season two.